One Hope Church. Here today, and we have a special time of fellowship afterwards. Got some chili to eat and to hang out. So just a special welcome if you're here and you're visiting with us, but you know, sometimes we can take our, our competition seriously, um, even our chili, you know, competitions, you know, I mean, Jimbo got beat so bad last year, he had to move his whole family to Idaho, <laughs> so anyway, I've been staying with that one for a while, for a while, I've been staying with that for a while, no, no, no. actually it ties in perfectly with the message, because we're in Matthew chapter 18, so I'm going to read just a little bit and then we'll pray. So that comment will make sense here as we read this, because it says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Uh, So we all have that desire to be the greatest, at least in something. Um, And and that's a a pretty fleshly thing that we, we all have and struggle with. And so we're going to talk about that some this morning and into the rest of the passage, but let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we thank you for your great love for us. We're thankful um, that though we are so prideful, your son came in humility um, and, and left all the, the perfection of heaven uh, to come in and to live among us and to um, be one of us and to die on the cross for our sins. And we're thankful the grave could not hold him, but that we serve a risen Savior who teaches us a different way um, to be and to live and, and ultimately just changes who we are. And so we thankful, we're thankful and help us, Lord, to live in the Spirit. Help us not to live in, according to our flesh, according to the standard ways of this world. We ask it, in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So again, back to chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, they had that question because this is something that they argued about right, more than once, about among the disciples, who would be the greatest, who would have the positions. Remember, they even wanted, you know, it wanted to be on the James. They wanted one to be on the right hand, one to be on the left hand of Jesus and His kingdom. I mean, they had this conflict. Uh, they had this desire to be great because you know they saw how it was in their culture and their society. They saw among you know the Hebrew people how you know the the chief you know priest or the you know the leaders, the religious leaders um, would be viewed and the respect and honor that they would receive. But then they also saw something. Even different than that, they saw in the, in the Roman world how those in power would be held in high esteem. And, and you know, a Caesar could you know, rule over you know, so much and so many. And so there's, there's part of them that, you know, that wanted that. And I, th- I think that if we're honest, you know, we all have some of that in us because we have pride. We have you know, self-love. You know, sometimes people are very... You know, upfront and open about it. You have, you know, Muhammad Ali. You know, the, his line that he said often: "I am the greatest." And there's part of us that, you know, if we're we're honest, there's an appeal to that 
in the flesh. Like, we are both magnetized toward that and repulsed by it at the same time. When Terrell Owens said, I love me some me, football player, by the way, for those who don't know, but he said, I love me some me, you know, he spoke honest words. He spoke honest words that are oftentimes in our, our hearts and in our minds, but, you know, we wouldn't be so daring as to say them out loud to other people. You know, you're not going to walk up to other people and go, I am the greatest. I love me some me. But that can be what's in the, the heart and in the minds, the hearts and minds of each one of us from you know, time to time. And it's a, it's a problem for us. You know, because our, our flesh is prideful and it's ultimately, you know, when you look through the scriptures, it's ultimately... You know, pride is, is one of those chief sins. If, you know, if, if there's a root to you know, so many other sins, it's, it's pride. It's pride. You think about, um, you know, Satan cast from heaven. For what reason? Pride. And it is that, that pride that has to be dealt with in order for us to know God, because God you know, says that he resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so listen to what Jesus says when he's asked that question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, they're sitting there and you know, you're kind of like, oh, I hope he says my name. I hope he says my name. But verse 2, then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, surely I say to you, Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Those are not necessarily the words that we would expect to hear. We would expect to hear perhaps one of the you know famous names from the Old Testament. You expect to hear Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah. You expect to hear those names. But Jesus doesn't give a name like that. He just tells them with a little child in their midst, you have to become as little children. You have to and, and, the, and the thing about that is, for an adult to become as a little child, there's a cognitive thing that has to happen, you know, in, in terms of the humbling, you know, oneself. To take the lower place. But that's how it is to be great in the kingdom of God, is to take the lower place. It's the opposite of the things in this world. In our world... You know, it's, you have to fight for and strive for and compete for that higher place that is often taken by force. And yet, this is a, a we see throughout the scriptures in Jesus' way of, of humility and of service.
And then he says this in verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. What does this, what does this mean? What is Jesus trying to teach us here? He actually makes um, a, a shift when he talks about these little ones, he makes a key phrase in here, who believe in me. And there we're not necessarily talking about age anymore, like in terms of a physical being, one of these you know, little ones who believes in me. Uh, this, this phrase, little children, are, you know, we're, we're referred to as the children of God. Well, you can be a child and be a, children, you know, a child of God. You can be an adult and be a child of God. Um, John picks up on this theme in the book of 1 John, and nine times he refers to this adult audience, which is largely an adult audience, as little children. My little children. And again, there's that humility that he's picking up on there that we need to have. We need to view ourselves, you know, little children. He says, for someone who believes in him, to, to cause one of them to sin or to stumble, it'd be better for that person to have a millstone were hung around his neck. My understanding here is there's a couple different types of, of millstones. One was a, a smaller one that you could you know, kind of operate you know, with a human you know, use, you know, work, doing the work. But these larger ones you had to have, you know, you'd have to hook a, a mule to it or a, a donkey, or, or something like that. And, and it seems like that's the kind, actually, that Jesus is referring to here. In this, you know, Jesus is kind of, sometimes he, he uses exaggerated language to really, you know, make a point to bring it home, because a smaller millstone would probably be enough to drown somebody, but he's leaving, like, no question as to what is going to happen to that person when they're thrown into the river. Like, they're not making it out of this. It's, a, it's going to be this very massive, large millstone. Drowned in the depth of the sea. Not something shallow, something deep. And it says, you know, woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. Why does it say offenses must come? Well, Jesus is being realistic here. We live in a fallen world. There's, you know, Satan. There's the world system. There's the human flesh. Like, there's going to be sin. You know, and, and this is really why all the time in our world we're trying to figure out you know, new solutions to the same old problems. Because most of the, you know, the world's solutions don't include you know, really how to, how to deal at the heart level, or the real level, to deal with sin. You know, so we're going to make our schools better. But we're never going to address or talk about sin. We're going to make our communities better, but we're never going to address or talk about sin. Only, you know, when things get, you know, you, you cross a certain line and then there's going to be, obviously, you know, some legal consequences. But even that is dealing with, you know, what has happened as opposed to the heart behind why it happened in the first place. You know, to dealing with things at the heart issue. 
without God, well, we're going to need a new plan in three years. I pretty much guarantee you we're going to try this, and then we're going to need another plan in three years because, well, we, we didn't bring God into the equation at all. But woe to that one by whom the offenses come. And then, this is again one of those hard sayings, and we've actually seen this saying earlier by Jesus, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having um, two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. That's pretty intense. That's pretty serious. Give one of these hard sayings of Jesus. And Jesus is telling us in no uncertain terms that we have to take the sin you know, in our lives very, very seriously. Now, if you take it in a, in a hyper- literal way, you know, we know the person, you know, wouldn't be alive for very long. Well, why is that? Well, because where do the, where, what's ultimately the source of the sin isn't in the, the hand or the foot or the eye, it's in the mind and the heart, right? So, you know, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't make it very long if you took a hyper-literal approach to this passage and say, Jesus, I'm going to take you seriously, so... Here goes, well, you know, you're going to find yourself with nothing. You're going to be dead very quickly. I, I, I give you like maybe two days. You know, <laughs> you know, like that's about as long as you're going to make it. Maybe, that, maybe like two days. But we can't, in saying that, what I'm afraid what happens when I say that is then, oh, well, then we don't take it very seriously at all. Well, he's not being literal. I mean, he's not being hyper-literal. He is being literal. Take your sin seriously. Don't play with sin. Don't have it as part of your life. Don't let it rule over you. Don't, and how do you not let it rule over you? Well, you, you stay, stay away from it. Because the reality is that sin makes us sick. Sin makes us spiritually sick and contagious. Because that's the part where he said, you know, to, you know, woe to what one by whom offenses come, like to cause one of these to stumble. Like sin makes you sick and it's highly, highly contagious. <laughs> So we have to be serious about it. We can't act like sin is no big deal. We can't act like hardness of heart is no big deal. We can't act like a lie is no big deal. We can't act like gossip is no big deal. We can't act like lust isn't, you know, well, everybody does it. You know, we can't do that with sin. Sin is serious. This is what Jesus is trying to teach us. Is that don't pretend that you can have sin in your life and that it's not going to make you sick. And that you're not going to be contagious 
to others. You know, we, we have the phrase, you know, nobody sins in a box. Like, your sin always affects other people. Your sin always affects other people. And this is really true in the, in the church because, you know, and, and, and it doesn't have to be known. That sin doesn't have to be known to anybody else, and it still affects other people. You're like, well, I didn't actually hurt this person. Well, actually, you, you did. Because if, if I'm part of the body of Christ and I'm sinning, then I'm not able to fulfill my function and role in that body. And therefore, other people don't get the benefit. So Jesus is, is just hammering home and he's putting it in such harsh, like hard terms, so that in hopes, I believe that we would we would get it. Now, here's something encouraging because I know that that can be like, yeah, got some things got to got to deal with. Well, First John two one, that that my little children phrase, my little children, these things I write to you that you sin not, but if anyone does sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Right? So the purpose in John's writing is that the believers would not have fellowship with darkness, that they would be away from sin, they would walk in the light. That's why first John was written. You know, walk in the light, walk in the light. But when we do step into darkness, when we do sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He forgives us and he cleanses, he restores, he makes us whole. Right? This is, that's really, that, that verse is used a lot of times like in terms of sharing the gospel with people who haven't believed in Jesus yet. But really the context is, that's for believers because in this world we still sin, we still get our feet dirty. We need to be washed, we need to be cleansed. Right? Like... So we are for, if you confess it, well, how do, why do you have to confess it? It's that humility that is required to say, Lord, I am wrong. Please forgive me. And if we do that, then he is what? Faithful, meaning he always will. And he is just because he died on the cross for us. To what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. So he doesn't just leave us sitting in our junk. But he takes us out of it and he washes us off, he cleanses us. And we can move forward. So in that it continues, if we say we have no sin... We make him a liar, and the truth is not in us. That's again, people. Sometimes people claim. I've actually had people say this to you know. I was on campus one time, and there was this guy who was preaching some weird things, and he said, "Since you know, I've come to Jesus, I haven't sinned in years or whatever." It's like, well, I think you just told a big fat lie. Right there, I guarantee it. Chalk another one up. You know, chalk another one up. That's a that's a lie. Because we're not perfect, and we're not going to be perfect this side of seeing Jesus face to face. 
but these things I write to you that you, so that you may not sin. Like That's the goal. The goal is to not sin. I mean, that's, that's one of the goals. It's not the only goal. I mean, but, and, and how do we do that? You know, we don't accomplish that by walking around going, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. Don't sin. Well, you're, don't think about this, don't think about Well, you're probably going to be thinking about those things and doing those things, okay? You don't, you, you know, you do that. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Be on mission with Jesus. Be so much more concerned about the things of God and the things of other people than of your own, and you're not going to sin a whole lot because sin is rooted in selfishness. And so if you're not being selfish, you're not going to sin that much. If your conversations and thoughts and everything is Jesus, towards Jesus, towards Jesus, and how can I make a difference today in the lives of other people for Jesus, for Jesus, for Jesus, for Jesus, then there's not that much room. Like the room is crowded out and there's not much room for sin. But when that room is empty, when it's me, when it's what I want, when it's about my joy Joy, that's not really joy, but just pleasure. When it's about my pleasure and my entertainment and my happiness and my stuff and me, me, me. And there's very little of God. And there's very little of others. Then that room in your heart is just wide open for sin. And pretty much any sin can walk in there and take up residence. And say, I live here now. We just need to live lives that don't make much room for it. You know, Greg used to always say, you know, we need guys, um, you know, talking about church leadership. He's like, you know, we need, we need men who are just so busy following Jesus and just, you know, doing hard work that men do. that They don't have time for sin. They don't have time to get messed up. Couldn't have an affair, could not even time for that. You know, just work hard. In the name of Jesus, eyes on Jesus, continuously looking to him. Then in verse 10, it's possible that Jesus shifts back here to a wider view. Not just, you know, the ones who are believers. He says, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. Remember, we got the child still there um, in the midst. For I say to you that in heaven... Their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, surely I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now let's... Talk about that a little bit more. Again, it's possible uh, that Jesus goes a broader you know, view when you've got you know, little children, innocence. Verse 10 is the, is the place where we get this idea of guardian angels. And you get that from here in Hebrews 1, 14. Talk about ministering spirits you know, to look over. Um, you know, but again, don't, don't do the... like. Hey, if something's wrong in my life, my guardian angel fell down on the job, or like if I sin, my guardian angel, come on. It doesn't absolve you of personal responsibility in any means. Now, stay with me here. Please don't, you know, or if you take a mental break, <laughs> come back. But verse 11, 
Um, so, you know, I read verse 11, and some of your versions, you're, you might have been like, uh, mine, mine didn't have that phrase. Mine didn't, was it, it, wasn't, it wasn't there. Where it says, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. So depending on what version you're using this morning, you might have verse 11, or you might not. If you're using English Standard Version, NIV, um, that's New International or New Living Translation, not there. If you're using New King James or the New American Standard Bible, it's there. Why is that? Okay. So this, has an, this is, the issue is where, which manuscripts were used in making that particular translation. The ESV, the NIV, the NLT predominantly use the older manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts available, and they're limited in number. The New King James, the New American Standard Version, or Bible, uses the majority of manuscripts that we have, but they're a little bit uh, newer. Okay? So, um, they're old, but they're not quite as old. So, the scholars who support the use of the early manuscripts believe that verse 11 was added later on. The scholars who support the use of the majority of manuscripts believe that the original manuscripts that were destroyed would have had that verse, and they think that because they have the majority of manuscripts represent a larger geographic area, like this one taken from Egypt, and this one from Turkey, and this one from you know, somewhere else. So, you know, they have a larger, you know, a broader geographic area. They say, well, there must be older ones, even older than these that you have here, that would have had this, back to the original. Now, the reality is, we're not going to know the definitive answer for that unless some new manuscripts are discovered. Or we get to ask that in heaven. Okay. But there is no doubt that Jesus said the words that are found in verse 11. How do we know that? Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. The exact same words. And this is in both, the, both sets. The majority and in the oldest. Okay, so all of your Bibles... Regardless of what version you're using, unless it's just a really, really terrible one, we'll have Luke <laughs> chapter 19, verse 10, with that exact same phrase. The question is, you know, did Jesus say that here in this context? In the context that uh, Jesus said it um, is with the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a rich man, he was a chief tax collector, he made his wealth by working with the Romans. Um, and by cheating his people out of their money. And in his salvation, um, we see his salvation there in Luke chapter 19, and Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Okay? Now, so we, we have it really, really clear um, here that Jesus is interested in this one sheep who's gone astray. And he will seek and he will search. He desires to find. Here's the reality of it, because there could be an argument of, you know, is this passage for believers who are, you know, in sin, or is it for somebody who's not a believer, you know, yet? Um, 
you know, when, when the same, Jesus gives the same parable in Luke 15, it's clear in that context, it's just like people who aren't believers, Jesus is searching for. So it's clear in that context there. For our purposes this morning, I think we can pretty safely just say this. If you're a person who hasn't believed in Jesus yet, <laughs> Jesus is looking for you. Humble yourself and be found. If you're a person who you know Jesus as your Savior, but you know, you've got sin in your, in your life, like Jesus is looking for you. Humble yourself and be found. You know, we say the same you know, thing, whichever place you're at. Look into the eyes of Jesus and things will change. Now, as we continue on the subject of sin and sin in, in among believers, even we have this in verse fifteen. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to tell the church. To hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two or three agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For there, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So in this passage is where we have this concept of church discipline in the right order with which to do that. Okay, so if someone offends you, if someone sins against you, what are you to do? Go to that person directly, one-to-one, and explain, hey, this is where I think you wronged me. Now, this is, again, general terms that Jesus is speaking in here, right? And this is also, he says, if you're a brother, so this is a person who has a claim to believe in Jesus. So this is in that context that we're talking. Don't take this to, you know, this is how I deal with my coworker who doesn't believe in Jesus. This has nothing to do with that. This is how I deal with my family member who did such awful things that you know, the person doesn't believe in Jesus. This isn't about that. So don't make something that's, you know, you've you got to keep it to the context. Otherwise, you can end up, you know, with some wrong, you know, ideas. Okay, the the church is is to in, in church discipline is to be with people who are in the church. Like we don't we don't judge the your coworkers, your the world. They don't make a claim to you know people who don't make a claim to faith in Jesus. We we don't have anything to do with that. There's other avenues for that if if it needs to be you know happen, but that's not in the church. So this is, again, also with the majority of situations. There are going to be exceptions. You know, if there's an issue of safety, there's an exception to that. All right? Let's just, you know, we, we take very seriously and we want to follow exactly what Jesus is saying. But when, you know, Jesus isn't here giving a discourse on then, where here's every potential scenario and, and what could be different in this scenario. This is going to cover the majority the vast majority of cases. Okay? 
If there's an issue of safety, then you might start at step two, which is take one or two with you that will be trustworthy witnesses. So the first issue, you were offended. You feel like there was sin present. You go to and try to work that out one-to-one. That didn't work. Now take one or two others with you who will be witnesses of the conversation. It doesn't say they're witnesses to the events that happened, but they're going to be witnesses to the conversation. And hopefully they're, you know, they need to be mature people. They need to be discerning people. Don't just take like, well, I know Joe's going to agree with me, so I'm going to take Joe. Joe's on my side no matter what. No matter if I'm dead wrong, Joe's on my side, so I'm taking Joe. No, that's not, no, don't do that. Because, like, do you really want what's best for both of you in this situation, or you just want to win? You just want to be right? Again, this humility has to, that Jesus speaks about has to go through this whole thing. And then if that doesn't work, third step is to the church. Now, it's not super specific here. It's, it's like, I mean, just to the church in general. Probably the Lord's Supper, open time, meeting might be an appropriate venue for this if necessary. There's, also, there's perhaps a place you know, to say, well, taking it to the church by taking it to the church leadership and asking them you know, for their rule on that. And we know that elders in the church are responsible for, based on the rest of the New Testament, we know that elders in the church are responsible for discipline. Okay, so you, you probably go with that. But then, I mean, there's certain cases, could be, I mean, an elder is sending other elders aren't hearing it. Well, to the church. You know, there's, a, there's sometimes, you know, things have to be. Now, what we see in this, again, you go back to a participation model of church, as you see throughout the New Testament. And when the, you know, the, the, so many problems happen when there's, there's no place for participation. There's no place for church discipline. There's no place for anything because, you know, apparently we're all too busy for that. So we're just going to have a meeting that we're going to be very scripted and then we're going to go eat at Piccadilly. I don't even know if Piccadilly exists anymore. I'm just showing my age. But anyway, that's what I when I was a kid, people were going to Piccadilly. Anyway. Um, but you get what I'm saying. Wherever you're going to go. Um, then it says this. If he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. All right, now what does that mean exactly? Because, you know, people will miss this, I think. And go, well, you know what then? I get to treat them bad. Well, where in Scripture... Does it say to treat people who aren't believers or to treat tax collectors bad? You actually see Jesus treat them pretty good with love, right? And sharing the gospel, sharing the good news of Jesus. So how you act is if that person's not a believer yet. They need God's love, I need to pray for their repentance, and I need to share the gospel with them. Because they don't have it. That's the approach that's to be taken. You know, in, in everything that Jesus says, 
there's no, I mean, Jesus says harsh words to his enemies and he's able to do that because he's like the perfect, you know, judge. But I mean, even then he's telling the truth and there's love and there's generally an opportunity for repentance if people would humble themselves. You know, Jesus never gives us a right to be mean to anybody. Jesus says, love your enemies. I mean, he has never given me, he never gives me permission if somebody's cussing me out, he never gives me permission to respond in kind. He just doesn't. And sometimes that's frustrating. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you the truth. I'm just going to tell you the truth. I was, I was playing ball during lunch the other day. And this guy, I mean, you talk about getting, I mean, he, 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 I think he was, he was definitely trying to, and he succeeded. He was getting under my skin. And there, I mean, at one point the ball went like, it didn't just go out of bounds. I mean, it was like, the Lord, help me on this one. Like, it went out the door. Like, it went out the door, like, into the other part of the gym. Like, and, you know, I went out, you know, to get it. Picked up the ball and I said, you know, Jesus, I know you love me, but I'm having a real hard time with that right now. I'm having a real hard time. Because in my flesh, what do I want to do? Give me peace of my mind. Get even. Put him in, you know, well, you said this, I'm going to put you where you need to be. But Jesus doesn't give me room for that. He expects something different from me. If I say I'm his follower, he expects me to respond in a different way. That doesn't involve the natural reaction of my flesh. He expects me to respond in the spirit. That's Jesus' expectation. And you know what? If I say he's my king, he has, and I have pledged my allegiance to him, then he has that rightful expectation as king to say, you're my servant and you handle it this way. This is what I expect of you. This is what I expect of you. And again, I keep going back to that, I think, in the church in a broad, general sense. Like, we, I mean, not all churches get this, unfortunately, but we, you know, churches that preach the Bible generally get Jesus is Savior. But again, we struggle with this concept of Jesus is a king that you pledge allegiance to. Like, your whole allegiance, every bit of you, comes under, in humility, under his authority. That Jesus Christ has the right to tell Chet Boy to do whatever Jesus Christ wants to tell Chet Boy to do. And he has the right to expect me to handle any situation that comes in my life in his name and according to his ways. Now, often as a not very good servant, I get that wrong a lot. Okay? I get that wrong a lot. But that doesn't change the expectations. I don't get to pretend, if I handle something in my flesh, I don't get to pretend I did a good job. I don't get to pretend, go, well, you handled that all right. No, I don't get to pretend that. Because Jesus has his expectations 
of how I'm going to handle it. And I, and I need to hear that this morning myself. And I need to hear that even as a, a parent. Because when my kid is like, uh, you know, in rebellion, you know, whatever. Like, I don't get to just respond in my flesh. Just because I'm the parent. I do sometimes. But, I don't, but that's not what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to respond in the Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't discipline. Because in the Spirit, like, God disciplines us. But there, so there's still got to be discipline. There's still got to be, you know, at times, a very firm word that is given. Like, that's not acceptable. But we need to remember that we too are little children. As the scripture tells us. And what does that mean? It means our father gets to say, not acceptable. Not acceptable. Like, the expectation is higher. We are little children. And it says here, man, on this issue of church discipline is the context in this scenario. There's other places, but in this scenario, in terms of agreeing or, you know, in the church where Jesus is there, where there are two or three or more gathered in his, his name and agreeing in his name, like they're going to be an agreement about church discipline with the Lord. That's pretty strong. That adds another weight to it. Certainly. There's point in time in that church discipline where the church may have to say, we love you, want to share the gospel, but because of your sin, you can't fellowship. Like it would, it would, it would be wrong for you to take the bread and cup. It would do you more harm than good if you're going to be unrepentant. Then verse 21, that natural question comes up. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? I mean, Peter is like, dude, I am a patient person. I mean, I am, I mean, I know it's a stretch, but up to seven, right? Jesus, I mean, I don't have to do any more than that with that person that just, you know, we, we, we tend to butt heads. And Jesus says, I did not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times 70. Sorry, 70 times 7, which is 490, which again is not literal, a literal answer. It's a literal answer, but there's more to it than that, right? You, now, I see the, the hyper literal person, person in their book. They got their notebook, and they're like, Fred, you got the 212. <laughs> I'm almost halfway there. <laughs> you know, like, and then I don't have to deal with you anymore, Fred. You know, like, but no, I mean, Jesus is telling us to have that attitude of forgiveness. That we would continue to keep on forgiving. Now, I mean, with that, there has to, you know, on the other side of the equation, I think we, we're going to see a, a true I'm sorry. Like, that needs to be there. You know, that's, that's also part of the expectation. But again, you can't control other people. Hey, people. You can't control other people. You know, when I stand before Jesus, you know, I'm not going to get to say, but Lord Claire, you know sometimes. 
you know, I'm like, I reacted because she reacted. She did that to me or whatever. Like, no, no, that's not going to, that's not going to work. Jesus isn't going to be like, well, well, you get a pass then. You know, it's all cool. That I understand. Oh, yeah, Sue. Sue was a difficult one. Sue was difficult. Yep. So you get a pass on her. You know, like, that's not how it works. I'm still 100% responsible for my attitude, my actions, my words. Regardless of what that other person does. I'm still responsible. And the, the world needs to hear this message in a, in a world of it's always somebody else's fault. We need people who will understand and say, it's no, it's my fault. That right there, my bad. My fault. Like, why is that so hard? If you can't say I was wrong, you still got a lot of pride. If you're unwilling to say I was wrong, there's still a lot of pride there that's got to get dealt with with the Lord. Like, I was wrong should be a pretty natural thing for a follower of Jesus to say. Because, I mean, I'm starting off with a presupposition. Like, my baseline is, I'm not perfect. My baseline is, I make a lot of mistakes. So if I know, if I know from the get-go, I'm flawed and I make a lot of mistakes, then how am I going to be like, you know, if, if then, this is a problem. I know that. But then in every individual situation, I still think I'm right. You know, this is, that's the conundrum for us, right? And I wouldn't have argued with you if I didn't think I was right to begin with. You know, but that humility, you have to have that, you know, coming out from humility, like, could I, could I be wrong here? You know, at least ask that question. Could, could I be wrong about this? Could I be wrong here? You know, may God help us with that. And now listen to what Jesus says. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And we had begun to settle the accounts. One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. I confess, I meant to do the math on exactly how much that was. Your Bible may give you a note that says and how much the other part, 10,000 talents. He was not able to pay. It's a tremendous amount of money. I mean, we're, we're talking 15 years wages. Somebody says, okay. He's not able to pay. More than that, we, we, we just got a big number. All right, we got a ridiculous amount of money. Let's just call it that. We got a ridiculous number. He was not able to pay. His master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children all he had and that payment be made. And that's, that's how it was in this time. And, you know, that's how it worked. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. But the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. That's huge, right? I mean, a tre- I mean, a tremendous amount of money. Took it away. Verse 28, But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, not that much, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would 
not, but went and threw him into prison till he could pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were grieved and came and told their master all had been done. Then his master, after he had called him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgive you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. And so my heavenly Father also will do to you, if to each of you, if from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. That's serious. That's serious. I, I think one of the things that Jesus wants us to understand is that your other people may, and again, the context is important. But, but I just want us to have in our, in our minds th- this idea of how much we've offended God. Like how great our debt was before God. But it's massive. It's massive. And so there needs to be an attitude of forgiveness towards others. Something else that's really important I think, to, to recognize is you know, when you don't forgive somebody... If that other person don't care, that other person doesn't care. You see what I'm saying with that? Like the the lack of being willing to forgive, who is it hurt most? Well, it's one who's unwilling to forgive. It's a it's a cancer. You that bitterness that grows in, in the heart. Like there needs to you know, in, in all things we need to have a, a, a willingness to forgive. You know, I always feel obligated in these situations because we know people's histories and context to, you know, for, forgiveness does not automatically mean that the relationship is the same as it was before the event occurred that required the forgiveness. Okay? Jesus is never asking people, hey, you were in a really abusive, terrible situation, and forgiveness means to put yourself right back where exactly where you were. No, that's not what Jesus says. That's not what he teaches. Like, we need to you know, take that off the table. But I still need to forgive the person. Right? Whether they deserve it or not. Because, you know, because God forgave me when I did not deserve it at all. So it's not a matter of is the person worthy of forgiveness or not. It's just that, you know, I need to forgive because God forgave me. And I need to, you know, and, and that helps us to move along. And when we haven't forgiven, we still hold that root of bitterness within us. And it's life is hard. Life is hard. Sometimes you think you forgave, and then something comes up again, and you realize it's still there, you know, uh, or it's renewed in some way. But you know, life is tough, and we need God's help. But we do need to take Jesus's words seriously, especially. Again, that context that that's given in the church and, you know, with a brother, you know, seems to be, a, you know, at play here. Again, you know, the, the context is important. When you take scripture outside of its context and, you know, you start throwing that to, to all over the place, you know, there can, there can be problems. There can be bad repercussions for that. And we don't have time to parse that out into everything right now in this, in this chapter, but... You know, certainly, you know, in the church, if, if, if church is done like family, 
and in terms of you know a closeness and fellowship and you're striving to share with one another and love with one another if you're with other people enough like eventually you're going to something's going to rub somebody the wrong way i mean you're going to have you're going to have these conflicts that arise and jesus gives us a way to handle that that is direct and very practical and orderly you know jesus's way isn't a way of talking behind people's back gossip well, what do you think about this? And what do you think about... No, Jesus' way is different than that. So let's make sure that when we have... in, you know, Let's just take it back to just little things in the church that we handle you know, among each other, that we handle things Jesus' way, the right way. You know, direct. If we go to the second step if we have to. We go to the third step if we have to. We don't want to. I think 99% of the time, you know... You go to somebody and you say, this hurt me. The person hey, I didn't intend that. I'm sorry. You know, it wasn't my intention, but obviously it, it, it did that to you, so I'm sorry. Or, hey, you know what? That was really, really stinky of me, and there was some intention behind it, and that was really awful, and I need your forgiveness. You know, 99% of the time, you know, when we are just deal with it head on, direct, it's done. There's like 1% of the time where it goes to the second step. And there's like 0.0001% of the time it goes to the third step. When we do it right. But so many times what happens is it gets much bigger. Because the first step is to tell somebody else. The first step is to tell my friend instead of saying, hey, we need to talk. The first step is a lot of times can be gossip instead of doing what Jesus said. And so we need to be careful about that and, and to try to do things the way Jesus wants us to do because, man, you know what? His way's best on everything. You're like, but, but Jesus, that sounds harder. I didn't say it's going to be easier. I didn't say Jesus' way was easiest. Just says best. Yeah, Jesus' way is always best. And I think long term... Most of the time, it actually is easier. Why? Because things actually get dealt with. As opposed to becoming this huge thing. You deal with things when they're tiny. So they're becoming this huge thing. You know, if you've ever had that happen to you, where somebody blows up and they've got, you know, their list of offenses that you've committed is like 20 deep. And that's the first you've heard of it. And you're like, but, you know, if you would... You kind of feel like, you know, if you had just said when that happened, like in that, you know, or later that day or the next day, hey, you offended me. Like we could have dealt with it right then and then it wouldn't have all added up. You know, and so that's what I think one of the things Jesus wants us to do. You know, a healthy church in a healthy church will take care of things direct and quick. And so let's strive for that. All right, let's pray. and We'll have our, our open time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us and your goodness to us, God. There's so many things in this chapter, and and Lord, we know there's more there for us to dig in and discover and to apply. We thank you, Lord, for your great forgiveness for us. Lord, because you've forgiven us so much, help us to be willing to forgive others. And Lord, help us um, 
to take sin seriously. Help us to strive for purity in our lives and we're thankful that when we do sin, we have an advocate. Jesus, that you are our advocate. We praise your holy name this morning. We ask you to cleanse us and purify us and help us wherever we need to in anything, Lord, to ask forgiveness of of you, of others. And we thank you as we take the bread and the cup and we remember your holy name, Jesus. We thank you for the price you paid for us. We praise you, Jesus. Precious name. Amen.